Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Hi, I'm Toby Young, one of Quillette's London-based editors. Last July, I attended the annual conference of the International Society of Intelligence Researchers in Minneapolis, and one of the speakers was the political scientist Charles Murray. He kindly agreed to sit down with me to talk about his new book, Human Diversity, The Biology of Gender, Race and Class, which I hadn't read at that point because he'd only just turned in the manuscript. He asked Quillette not to publish the podcast until the book's official publication date, which is today, January the 27th. I began by asking him to give me an overview of the book. I have an analogy that I think works pretty well, where I try to explain to the reader why I do such different things with race, class, and uh, gender. I have five chapters about gender, and uh, four of those are about phenotypic differences, meaning differences that we observe. One of them is about what brain neuro- neuroscience is telling us about the sources of those differences. And the reason we can do that is because the archaeological dig, if you want to think of it that way, for gender is very well advanced. We've uncovered the outlines of the city, we have thousands of artifacts, lots to analyze. There's a lot that we know confidently. Class is sort of the opposite insofar as the archaeological dig for class was pretty much done by the end of the 20th century. We knew a lot then, the site closed down, and it's only recently that uh, scholars are returning to it because of new tools that genetics is providing. Race is, is the oddest of all. The geneticists have identified a promising site, as it were. They have sunk a few exploratory shafts that uh, look promising, and we know that interesting things are down there, but we don't know what they are yet. So, so I, I take a much more uh, guarded view about race differences just because we know uh, so much less. So let's take each of those things in turn. Starting with gender, what, what do you say about gender? First, along with most scholars who are, are, are serious in this field, I substitute the word sex. Uh, the distinction with gender between gender and sex is real, but the fact is there are probably very few pronounced gender differences that don't have a genetic component. The sex differences divide very simply along this distinction. Men on average are more interested in things and women are on average more interested in people. These are overlapping distributions which Toby, I do not need to tell you, people do not understand. If you have a difference in means between men and women, that still means that those bell curves, let's say it's something like uh, height. Men have a mean height that's about three some inches taller than women, okay? But lots of women are taller than lots of men. 
Uh, and that's true with all the sex differences. Lots and lots of overlap. But they break along that line of people and things. Just on the subject of the distinction between gender and sex, do you get into the question of whether gender has a biological reality which in some instances, albeit quite rare ones, is at odds with the sex of the individual? Yeah, I've got got a whole chapter on this fraught issue because we're told that how many different sexes are there? 372 or something. I'm making that number up, but mm-hmm. but there, look, uh, there absolutely is such a thing as biological ambiguity. It affects less than one percent of all human beings, and now this is just a purely biological ambiguity, such as uh, a person, a fetus, has both has an X and a Y chromosome, mm-hmm. which means that ordinarily it would be a male. But uh, in utero, the uh, fetus is not exposed to the surge of testosterone that, uh, uh, that, that is experienced ordinarily, and the male genitalia and so forth never develop. And people like that usually live their lives out as, as women, mm-hmm. but they are definitely biologically different. It's a very small proportion of people. Similarly, homosexuality. Uh, homosexuality is real. So is bisexuality. There, there is indeed a continuum from complete heterosexuality to complete uh, homosexuality. But something in the order of uh, 95% of all humans are completely heterosexual. And that's so wildly at odds with popular thinking. Gallup Poll asks, what percentage of people are homosexual? And they routinely get 23 25%. The actual number is more like 4%. And, and when looking at sex and gender differences and examining the evidence of this extensive archaeological dig, yeah. do you tease out any policy implications? Do you talk about what the implications are for, for instance, affirmative action in STEM fields? Yes, I get into that uh, very late in the book. But it's simply a matter of common sense. And let's take something as, like women in combat. Well, there is no reason that a woman cannot be as an effective member of a combat missile firing team on a U.S. Navy ship as a man can be. There are a variety of reasons why you don't want to make a woman part of a frontline infantry platoon in combat. And those reasons go to uh, physical differences, upper body strength, but it also goes to things like (laughs) enthusiasm for physical combat, uh, in which there is a sex difference, is probably grounded in biology, and some other kinds of of male-female differences, which have nothing to do with courage. They have nothing to do with intelligence. They do have to do with a particular skill set. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to have a policy recommendation saying, poor women, poor frail women shouldn't be allowed in combat situations. You use sense, common sense, to say, here it makes a good choice, there it makes a bad choice. It sounds like, we'll get on to the other group differences in due course, but it sounds like um, a work of sociobiology almost. And I've always thought of you as a kind of sociobiologist, but you don't like to describe yourself that way, or even as a sociologist, but as a political scientist. Is that right? Well, I think 
MIT requires me to describe myself as a political scientist, okay. since that's what my degree is in. You know, I'm, I'm basically an applied social, quantitative social scientist. Right. Uh, so that the applied is important, and the phrase social scientist as opposed to any one discipline is right, because I'm all over the map in, in psychology, uh, sociology, political science. I do a bit of all of it. Okay. Social class, which was the main subject of coming apart. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the conclusions you reach about social class? Uh, in a nutshell, <laughs> uh, Dick Hernstein was right back in 1972 where he had a famous syllogism which said if uh, success is partly based on intelligence and intelligence is heritable, uh, then success in modern societies will be to some extent heritable. It actually was not a controversial, shouldn't have been controversial when he said it, but we just know so much more now. And, And the reason we know so much more is that even before the genome was sequenced, the psychologists figure out a very powerful methodological way of disentangling nature from nurture, and that is to use twins. Not twins raised apart, which is the sexy thing that we've all read about. It's a lot of fun, but actually it's twins raised together because you have monozygotic twins who share all of their genes, and you uh, that's identical twins, and then you have fraternal twins, known as dizygotic twins, who uh, come from two eggs, share 50%. And so with all sorts of traits, you can look at the correlation between twins on a given trait, and if it's higher in the uh, monozygotic twins and than it is in the, in the dizygotic twins, for algebraic reasons I won't go into now, that difference in a representative sample must be genetic. And so you can decompose the causes of these differences in traits into the genes, the shared environment of the family, and the non-shared environment and measurement error. It's a very powerful method. Thousands of studies have been done doing it. And what it really says is uh, all traits are heritable to some degree. The shared environment plays a much smaller role than people think, the family environment. Hate to say this, parents, but you really make a big difference to your kids with your genes, you don't make all that much difference with your parenting practices. And also a, a big chunk is unexplained. It's this non-shared environment which is very mysterious. And in the bell curve, you and Richard Hernstein essentially extrapolate from that uh, syllogism to make this rather pessimistic prognosis yeah about modern meritocratic societies, which is that they tend to degenerate into these biologically-based caste systems in which the cognitive elite is at the top and the cognitively disadvantaged are at the bottom. And I'm particularly interested in that because that is the hypothesis that my father puts forward in his book, The Rise of the Meritocracy, and one of the reasons the meritocracy described in that book collapses. Um, And in coming apart, you found even more evidence that that was beginning to happen than in the bell curve. I didn't go farther than that. In the the bell curve, Dick and I uh, said, you know, if things keep going on the way they are, this is what's going to happen. And in coming apart, I said, folks, it happened. Right. We're basically there already. And uh, a lot of the consequences are, uh, as your father foresaw, and as we worried about in 1994 when we published The Bell Curve. 
So I wanted to push back a little bit on that. Um, you've probably seen this book. It's called uh, The Genome Factor, in which these two sociologists, Conley and Fletcher, they decide to test that hypothesis. And they say it's, it's all very well to look at assortative mating for phenotypic characteristics, which you do in the bell curve and in coming apart, and you quite clearly show that assortative mating for phenotypic markers for high cognitive ability has increased, increased over the course of the 20th century. But they look at whether assortative mating has increased for the genotypic markers associated with high cognitive ability and they say that over the course of the 20th century it remained pretty flat and in some cases even declined a little bit. Now caveat, they were using uh, data derived from a genome-wide association study which only found genetic markers associated with years of education and that could predict done, about 3% or, of the variance. When was it done? 2013. Yeah. The proper response is, that's really interesting, uh, GWAS analysis for our listeners, that's a phrase you better get used to hearing because uh, GWAS stands for Genome-Wide Association Studies, and it is the tool through which we identify which SNP, which little bit of genetic material is associated with which traits. Uh, so I say to them, more power to you. You have set out a, a, a finding from an early study in Genome-Wide Association Studies at a time when you had samples that are quite small by current standards. We now have much larger samples. People have been exploring this. I fully expect we will see lots more about all of this, and I await those results with great interest. I don't know what they'll be. One explanation for Conley and Fletcher's finding isn't that we don't live in a biologically-based caste society, but that we have always lived in a society a bit like that. And curiously, meritocracy hasn't acted as an accelerant. It hasn't really had much impact because it was ever thus. Yeah, yeah phenotypically I'd say that, uh, that, that, the, that, that we live in a quite different world than we lived in in 1960 in the United States. But your point about it has always been thus finds really interesting uh, supporting evidence in Greg Clark's work. Yep. He's the one who analyzes uh, uh, surnames and goes back three, four, five hundred years in England and finds this astonishing persistence of social classes over lots and lots of generations. And um, that's one of the things that makes this such an interesting field. Mm -hmm. Is that really the case? Was there that much efficiency? I, I look at 18th century England when Adam Smith famously said that probably the difference between a philosopher and a street porter was more a matter of customs and education than of nature. And I always sort of thought that he must have been right, that most people who were capable of being philosophers were farmers and housewives and porters. To the extent you have had not much change in social mobility, it forces us to say, what the hell is going on here? So to, to all listeners, I hope that you understand that I look upon this book as being, the subtext is, isn't this interesting? And it's new stuff, new, new findings are coming out every week, new methodological advances are coming out every week, and here's a progress report, and stay tuned because it's going to be a fascinating ride. 
We've reached the halfway point in this Quillette podcast, and it's time for a short message from Blinkist. If you're the type of person who reads Quillette and listens to the Quillette podcast, you also might be the sort of person who reads a lot of books. But like me, you probably never have enough time to read quite as many as you'd like. And that's where Blinkist comes in. Open the Blinkist app on your phone, tablet, or browser, and suddenly you're able to read or listen to expert 15-minute summaries of popular nonfiction books. For one low price, you get unlimited access to the entire Blinkist library. There are 12 million people using Blinkist. For some users, it's the soundtrack to their daily slog through traffic. Others read Blinkist on the subway. In my case, I listen to Blinkist when I walk my dog, which usually takes about 15 minutes. That's one whole book. Go through the Blinkist catalog and you'll find all sorts of big brain books like Upheaval by Jared Diamond and Sapiens by Yuval Noel Harari. But they've also got those business books you see in airport swivel racks, not to mention the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels, and of course, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free seven-day trial at 25% off. And now, back to our podcast. And as if the subject matter we've discussed so far isn't controversial enough, you also decide to wander across onto the third rail (laughs) and you discuss race again in this book. It's really pathetic what has gone on with race is race partly a social construct? Sure is. No question. So is gender, by the way. Partly a social construct. <laughs> is, is race a fiction of our imagination? No. And so here what I try to do with the reader is to say, look, we still don't know very much about the sp- details, but we do know something for absolutely certain sure. And that is that the orthodoxy promulgated by Richard Lewontin of Harvard and of Stephen Jay Gould of Harvard is wrong. That orthodoxy uh, promulgated in 1970s and early 1980s says two things. First, it says that uh, the great majority of variation uh, among human beings is within race instead of across races. That you only have about 15% of the variation which is uh, across races, which is absolutely accurate statistically. The, the error was in saying that 15% must necessarily be trivial. 15% is, is more than enough to create major differences. And the other part of the orthodoxy was that uh, Gould was especially strong on this, that there hasn't been time since human beings left Africa for there to have been significant evolutionary change. And there are good reasons for Gould to have thought that in 1981. It turns out he was wrong. And we have learned over the 1990s, but especially in the last 20 years, and even more especially after the genome was sequenced, that there has been lots of evolutionary pressure in the last 50,000 years, uh, that that pressure has been mostly local to continents. So they've been, pressures have been very different in Africa than they've been in East Asia, than they've been in Europe, and that there has been significant change. All of those things are established. 
And so I'm saying to the reader about this, look, we don't know what we're going to find out yet. We can be pretty sure that human beings the world over are similar in the basics and pretty sure that we're different in some details. These details are not going to be scary. They're not going to be dramatic. But this business of painting ourselves into a corner where, where we kind of hysterically deny the possibility of any uh, of any genetic origins to phenotypic differences is nuts. And, and people have start, got to start accustoming themselves to thinking about this in a more open-minded way. If my understanding of your position on this issue is correct, which is that in the controversial chapter in The Bell Curve, you end up in an agnostic position. The, your and Hernstein's position is essentially the average differences in general cognitive ability between different ethnic groups may be genetically influenced. We don't know enough to yeah. definitively answer that question yet. So uh, that controversy is it's just one sentence, actually, uh, where we say, we think it is likely that it's probably a, some combination of both. Yep. What might the mix be? We are resolutely agnostic. Dick and I were guilty of refusing to say that no, there are no genetic differences. It was a very prudent, judicious, scientific judgment. Okay, so you allow for that possibility, but you don't come down firmly on one side of the fence That's or the right. other. Um, in addition, you know, you don't at any point in the book say that white people, Caucasians, have um, the highest. On the contrary. Uh, on the contrary. Um, uh, there are many other groups much higher than that. Um, and you also, you're at pains, I think, uh, to, to point out that you don't think that uh, moral equality uh, should be based on biological identicalness. Exactly. Um, and that, um, uh, but in spite of going to those lengths, people have branded you a racist and a white supremacist and protesters come out and chant and so forth. Why do you think people ignored the cautiousness and the judiciousness with which you and Richard Hernstein expressed yourself in the book and you've expressed yourself subsequently? Why are they so keen, do you think, to brand you as a racist and a white supremacist? 99% of them have never read what we actually said. They have taken the pronouncements of the Southern Poverty Law Center They've taken the pronouncements of uh, Leon Kamen or of, of other very vociferous critics. They've never looked at the book. Now, if you ask me, how can the people who originated those charges have knowingly lied about what we said? That's a much more interesting question in a way because one of the most disappointing things about the reaction to the bell curve was that academics, including some academics that I had formerly respected, in, in my view, knowingly lied about what the book said. And I, it's very hard for me to imagine how they justified that to themselves. Do you think that their argument might be that even though we accept that there is a distinction between everyone's entitlement to equal treatment, equal rights, equality of opportunity, we, we accept that that isn't contingent on everyone being exactly the same. Mm -hmm. um, but 
there are less sophisticated, less educated people than us in red state America um, who, uh, who might commit the naturalistic fallacy. And because there's a risk that they might do that, we have to maintain uh, this environmental determinism. The noble lie. The noble lie. I think that's part of it, but there's also, Toby, this strange passion for what I call the sameness principle, that all groups of human beings, are because they're under the skin, they're all the same, then therefore, if there is any difference in outcomes, whether it's family income or, or whatever, that must be the result of some pernicious imperfection in the social structure and institutions, and it can be fixed by the right social policy. Mm -hmm. I'm baffled by the emotional commitment to that. Do you, think the emo do you think that the emotional commitment has intensified as the evidence that the social policies that they've committed to are ineffective has mounted up? It's a kind of cognitive dissonance whereby they keep on doubling down. Yeah because I think it, the atmosphere now is far more polarized than it was when the bell curve came out. And I thought it was pretty polarized then. <sighs> you know, cognitive dissonance is a strange thing. Now, I'm not a psychologist. I probably shouldn't pronounce on cognitive dissonance. But just think how much is involved in the reaction to the findings about intelligence, for example. The very same academics who are insisting that IQ tests don't measure anything and there's no such thing as a general intelligence factor. Pardon me, but these same people, when they get up in the morning and are putting on their makeup or shaving or whatever, they're thinking about how smart they are relative to their colleagues. In academia, pure intelligence is the coin of the realm. And you, you are worried about not being as smart as your colleagues. You take great pride in being smarter than your colleagues. And then you go out and say, oh, IQ doesn't really mean anything. What the hell is going on in their heads? The paradox in some ways is more acute than that because denying the importance of intelligence um, is almost a way of signaling how smart they are. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um, but you say, I mean, I think you say rightly that, that um, there is less tolerance now for discussing these kinds of issues in a calm, rational manner than there was in 1993 when you published The Bell Curve. Okay, so first of all, was the reaction to The Bell Curve a surprise to you or, or, or were you kind of expecting that and did you insert that controversial chapter in order to generate controversy oh, to generate sales? did not at all. <laughs> we, we, we talked about the possibility of not discussing race in the book and right. finally decided it was just going to be an omission that would cast the whole argument about the role of IQ into doubt if, if critics could say, oh well they don't even mention uh, that uh, IQ tests don't measure, measure the same thing for blacks as they measure for whites and they're invalid, etc., etc. So we had to put it in. I actually thought that it was possible that that chapter was written so quietly, so calmly, so humanely, if I may say so, that I thought we actually might get praised for finally being able to discuss this thing rationally. Another part of me did suspect that Gia's might blow up in our face. Mm -hmm. And the intensity of the blow up surprised me. So uh, it was a quarter of a century ago, and 
So you can claim some degree of innocence then, but this time you really can't. I mean, it sounds like, you know, you may be you may be accused of uh, of deliberately yeah. wading into a minefield this time around, knowing in advance just what a shitstorm it's going to generate. Yeah, yeah. Although uh, you know, a more detached view of it uh, casts some doubt on whether that'll be the reaction, because there was a book that came out for 2014, almost six years ago, called uh, "Troublesome Inheritance." Mm -hmm by Nicholas Wade, who was for years a highly respected science edit writer in the New York Times. And it was uh, a, a very serious scientific account of what's been going on in genetics and race. It was very accurate. Then he added on to those initial rock-solid chapters of science, he said, okay, I'm now going to uh, present some more speculative literature. And I want to point out that this is not, doesn't have the same kind of of evidence behind it, but speculation is the way you learn more. And as soon as I saw that, I said, Nicholas, <laughs> you, you have blown it. Uh, did, they, he, did you actually say that? Did he show it to you before he published it? Did you say no, it to I, him? No, no, I read it when it was when published. It, right. if, I, if he'd shown it to me before he published, I, I literally would have said to him, Nicholas, don't do this. But, but here's the point. Somehow, they managed to cast, they meaning the orthodoxy, managed to cast a blanket over that book. So I bet most of the people listening to us have never heard of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, they did, there was not a big controversy about it. So, and, and I have to add to that, there are no sensational findings in this book. There is not one bombshell. So you know what? Now that I realize it, I'm in exactly the same position I was before the bell curve came out. Then I was thinking, we just might get praised for this. And now I'm in the position to say, this book just might go unnoticed. The other option is that it'll explode, but who cares? I mean, do I crave this notoriety? No, I do not. Uh, but I was fascinated by the topic. I wanted to write on it, and I'm 76 years old. So they're going to ruin my career? Is that it? They're going to call me names that I haven't been called before? Basically, well, a vulgarity comes to mind, which I won't voice, but, it, but mainly, who cares? I mean, you do seem to have weathered the mobbing you experienced in 93, and which you experienced alone because Dick Hernstein yeah, died, just died just before the book 94 was published. Was, yeah. It was 94. Um, you, seem to, you seem to have weathered that storm reasonably well. Have you got any advice for people who find themselves being targeted by social justice outrage mobs in the academy, uh, being assailed in the way that you were back in 94? To, some, to the degree you can, you want to insulate yourself from what's going on. Within about a month of the Bell Curve's publication, I had stopped reading newspapers and I'd stopped watching television because there was something about the Bell Curve on just about every day. And so my wife would read them. And, and she would say, well, here's something you must respond to. In that case, I'd do it. Because unless you have an enormously thick skin, this kind of response can make you lose a lot of sleep, it can make you exhausted, you can increase your alcohol intake by a good bit. Uh, it's not pleasant. And that's the only practical bit of advice I'd give. I also have to say that if you are a young person without tenure, you probably shouldn't do it because you probably won't get tenure. And uh, 
it, it, because it's genuinely risky. It, you say I weathered it, and I did. But it, I remember it was three years, I think, after the publication that I was giving a presentation on the bell curve, and about 10 minutes into it, I realized I was doing it unconcerned. I was undefensive. I was just sort of laying out stuff, feeling kind of free and easy about it. It was the first time in about three years I felt that way. So it took a while. Right. And do you think that the hostility it provoked has resurged? Were you shocked by the reaction to your talk at Middlebury? <sighs> well, there had been uh, storm warnings. After the Trump was nominated in the fall of 2016, I'd gone to Swarthmore where there had been a quiet, peaceful demonstration. And I think there had been a couple of other instances when I realized that uh, something had changed on campus. But when I got to Middlebury, I had, and I'd been told, oh, there's going to be a demonstration organized. And I thought, well, I've done that before. Uh, the scale of the demonstration, the violence of it, uh, shocked me. Uh, as you know, the professor from Middlebury, Allison, uh, Allison Stanger, was seriously injured because she was at one elbow, along with another Middlebury person at the other elbow, helping me get to the car uh, after. So yeah, I was shocked. When I spoke to you for the Radio 4 program I made about my father's book, I think in 2016, one thing I think you said to me, which wasn't included in the program, was that the evidence now that genes shape who we are, the nature of our society, is now so overwhelming that environmental determinism is enjoying its last hurrah in the social sciences and its hostility towards hereditarianism, even in its mildest, uh, most reasonable forms, um, is a kind of last gasp of a dying animal. Yeah. Do you, are, you still, are you still reasonably confident of that? I'm, I'm more, more uh, precise about it now. In the book, I say that I think the key battles will be fought and won uh, during the 2020s. Okay. So I expect by 2030 that uh, well, to put it bluntly, in, in the applied social sciences, any study of social behavior trying to explain its causes that does not include genetic material uh, won't pass peer review because the automatic question will be, well, why didn't you include this readily available genetic material in your analysis? Now, I, th I think that uh, the social sciences are going to be transformed. I think the next decade we'll see major changes in its, uh, on its own and after 2030 it's going to be a different field. Last question. Um, one thing that might transform the public attitude and the attitude within the academy to intelligence research would be if there was a major scientific breakthrough which clearly benefited mankind as a result of this research, something like the Apollo moon landing, an event that unifies mankind and which diffuses hostility to what has been a very controversial field of research. And such things are possible. For example, everybody is upset about uh, the possibility of genetic differences in IQ, 
But suppose that this new genetic research yields uh, pharmaceuticals that can deal with uh, ADHD. And all at once you have something that's a real problem that lots of parents agonize about with their kids, and we can deal with it. And how can we deal with it? We learn to deal with it because we, we understood the genetic underpinnings. How about if we can do the same thing with schizophrenia? Uh, there are Alzheimer's. all sorts of ways in which a lot of people out there are going to consider research in genetics as a great boon rather than a great danger. Charles Murray, thank you very much for talking to Quillette. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.